0: Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. My guest on this episode is Marcos Trinidad. Marcos is a Los Angeles-based birder who is the center director of the Audubon Center at Debs Park. Debs Park is the fourth largest park in Los Angeles, and during his time there, he's made great strides towards making and keeping the center closely tied to the Latino community roots of the local residents. At one point, every employee of the center lived within a five-mile radius of the center. And Marcos is a champion of recognizing that nature is more than just prototypical, beautiful, remote, natural places. Nature is everywhere, and Marcos is helping to promote recognition of the nature around us, especially in urban areas, like near where he works at Debs Park in Los Angeles. We talk about the Los Angeles River and birding in that area. I have very fond memories of birding there, while well, I took time to spend with Kay and her family uh, while she was uh, taking respite from her fight with cancer. To get to the river from where we stayed in Fullerton was fairly easy, and it provided a great place to walk, to birdwatch, and just relax. Although not like any other river I'd ever seen, it had its own natural beauty, essentially refusing to be contained by the concrete barriers that tried to channel it as a culvert to the sea. Marcos makes some important points during our discussion, and I encourage you to listen to his points on ways to make cell phones and technology tools that encourage us to connect with nature in new and creative ways, rather than something to be discouraged at all costs. He also has great points to make about coming to grips with the roots of our Audubon Society name and the club that has only recently made attempts to be more inclusive. I feel like I learned a lot by listening to Marcos and recording this episode, and I hope that you also feel Marcos' story and experiences are an opportunity to learn more also. Help me welcome Marcos Trinidad to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 131. Marcos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, a fellow podcaster and a fellow birder. That should be fun.
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Good. Good. Marcos, I've done just a little bit of research about you, but I thought maybe the most remarkable accomplishment is that you actually get your kids to go birding with you. Uh, uh, your assistant sent me, she said, Marcos loves to get bird wa- get out birdwatching with his two children, Pamela and Biha, along the Los Angeles river. How do you do it? All of us are jealous, right?
2: <laughs>
1: so it's an interesting story because for a really long time, they didn't have an option. They didn't even know that another option existed. They just felt that that's, that's what folks do. Um, And this is early on. We, we do a lot of uh, uh, walks and hikes. And, and that was just how we, we, we spent time together. I think what, really encouraged this way of of interaction for me and me and the kids uh was us actively making a decision as parents that these were the things that we value in our life and that we want to teach our our kids and share with them so it was just such a great time I feel I'm the best version of myself when I'm outdoors and when I'm able to explore it, when I'm able to learn things and teach things. So it was only natural that, that those were the, the, the the things that that I wanted to do and share with the kids. Now, one thing I I do have to, um, I guess, put out there is, is for the first, I would say, so, so my daughter is 12 and my son is now nine, that's mm-hmm. Bijan Paloma. We, up until the pandemic, we did not have a screen in the house. We, we live in a tiny home and it was 450 square feet for four of us. No TV, no internet at home. So everything we were doing was, was either outdoors or through storytelling or, or playing or, or just exploring so um it was that time to get outside we'd go on a bike ride and everything we would do we would we would place I, an identity on things mm-hmm. so it wasn't just hey look at that tree it was hey look at that pine tree or hey look at that Deodore cedar or that california oak or or just labeling things or then Get to a bird that's a mockingbird, and look at that house finch. Or hey, check out these bush tits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think naturally it just really stayed with 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 the kids. Now that we introduced screen, it is harder to get them them out, and and they are somewhat of um, I would say uh, <laughs> a particular type of bird watcher where. If they're not guaranteed to see new birds, they're not going to want to go out. They're
0: listers listers from the get-go.
1: I think we can all relate to now where I'm just like, hey, you want to go out here? Oh, I've I've seen all the birds there. (laughs) So it is a little different now.
0: So your no-screen home was yet one more casualty to COVID. Bummer.
1: It was. I think by March... 30th of of 2020 we not only had every person equipped with with their own device we had all the subscriptions we had netflix we had hulu we had everything <laughs> i think the kids caught up on 20 years of simpsons yeah. episodes in like 4 months
2: <laughs>
0: okay yeah it's also the age i mean they're they're getting to an age where Dad, other kids have TV, you know? Yeah, I don't know if that was a yeah. part of it too. Anyway, uh, Marcos, you have uh, a rich career in nature and birding and other aspects of, yeah, you know, other aspects of teaching about uh, nature and such. Kind of walk me through your story, uh, your birding story and your career path. Just tell me, tell
1: me who you are. So, <sighs> you know, it, it, it's interesting because I never thought I would be a bird watcher. Like, it, it just wasn't a thing that, that I knew of as, as, as a kid growing up, um, even into high school. I did not know uh, that working outdoors in this capacity was, was a job. For me, I, it, you know, it ended up taking a, a, a trip overseas. Uh, I, I joined the military early on. I think I was at 17 years old. Both of my parents had to sign for me to join the military because I was too young to sign myself away. Mm-hmm. And you know, there I was, Fort Knox, Kentucky, going through boot camp, really experiencing an outdoor—you know—in quotation mark outdoor experience of being out in the woods and and hearing all these different insects and birds and and then through military training, learning how to navigate through the this terrain with a map and compass and and listening to the sounds and and basically learning how to observe. You know, I, I was stationed in, in Germany, so out in the country in, in southern Germany, and it ended up getting to to a point, I think, where I felt really comfortable outdoors and, and having these, these great outdoor experiences and, you know, coming back to the United States, I, I end up, uh, uh, getting a job with a local nonprofit environmental organization, planting trees and building parks. That we're preserving open space in Los Angeles, and and I know that might sound mm-hmm. interesting or like, wait a minute, what did you say, open space in Los Angeles? Because open space or nature in Los Angeles really isn't the first thing people think of when they hear Los Angeles. So it was something that really interesting. Um, but I think that experience of of being outdoors, being able to make these observations, but also being a people person, being someone that was really interested in having an impact in the community. I found this natural way to to weave these things together, Uh, being able to understand how the natural world was, was working within an urban area. And then also being someone that could now introduce this line of work to the young Marcos out there, the young generation or the younger generation and, and really make that that something that was a focus. So um, from there it, it really it really uh, allowed me to, to look into different, fields of conservation, you know, studying geology, anthropology, and then really getting into a culture, really looking at what is the, the tangible thing? What is the action that mm-hmm. I can have, which was a lot of uh, uh, tree planting within our urban forest. And I think that's what ultimately led me to birds at that time. And we all have that spark bird or that, sure. that bird experience, which yeah, I, I would say the rest was history at that point.
0: Cool. Uh, so you uh, you got into nature in the in a different way through the military uh, and through some experiences in your post military time. And it sounds like you've got on to just a really remarkable career. I have to say uh, that many of us aspire to trying to be more inclusive to people of color and people from urban settings to uh, not just birding, but all things uh, conservation and natural. But you have walked that walk. Uh, you know, you've really been a leader in, in that uh, community, that movement, so to speak. Uh, tell me about some of your experiences there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, in just how we frame the work. As, as conservationists and then how we we find the words to, to explain what we do and how we do it and ultimately who it, who we do it for. For me, getting into this work was never about, getting into this work to talk about what it's like being brown doing this work. Mm-hmm. It just became part of part of the job when when we, we started to realize that there was a lack of diversity within the environmental field or the conservation field. And then I had to come or get to a point where it wasn't that there was a lack of diversity of people that cared for the the environment or that supported the idea of science, allowing us to, to learn from the environment. It was a lack of the stories that were shared about the people that were doing this work. And what I realized is, you know, me being a part of one of the largest conservation organizations in in the country and one of the oldest, it's also middle to upper class, white demographic, really old history there. And I, I had to come with, to terms with, you know what, a hundred years ago, I would have probably never been trusted with the keys to the building, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? let alone now leading one of the, the, the nature centers that, that are the future of an organization like Audubon And to me, what allowed me to, to really focus this energy, on on a particular audience was was really being from that audience. Now understanding, wow, this there's value in understanding a particular audience or understanding what message needs to be delivered. And one one of the things that allowed us for success because it wasn't me alone. It, it was definitely a team that that allowed for for much success and Audubon as an organization being willing to put themselves in very uncomfortable situations with acknowledging that we need the community more than the community needs the organization. And then also getting to a point where all outdoor uses or the use of outdoor space is valid. And in the conservation world, we often get to a point where if people are not using the outdoors the way that we think they should be used, it's not a valid use. If you're not outside birding, what are you doing? (laughs) Really? So a quick example is, you know, when we have this beautiful nature center and these beautiful decorative metal gates to the fortress and we invite people to come in and right behind those gates, we have a sign that says no loud music, no uh, uh, pinatas, no uh, bouncy house, no barbecue, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And so right as you enter, we're already disconnecting from the community And it's not that those things are not valuable. It's just that we're already disconnecting from from a group, an audience that we're setting intention to connect with. So one thing we had to understand is that, hey, you know what, those things are, are, are great and that's how people build community. But just because we don't allow that here doesn't mean that those things shouldn't be allowed somewhere or doesn't bring value. So right. we had to shift how we think about these these things and and then get to a point where we were able to talk about the work that was important to us and and ultimately how bird conservation and preservation of of important bird places are or should be of particular interest in communities and this is where it gets pretty controversial because when you're an environmental organization or a conservation organization, you have something to teach, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And you want as many people to subscribe to it or to listen to your teachings. And what I found so interesting is we were able to get funding and, and donations and grants with this idea that we were going to teach something to these brown and black communities about being environmentally friendly, which was ultimately how to save water because we're in California, Los Angeles, how to save water and how to recycle. What I had to get our organization to understand is that this particular community does it the best. We have the lowest carbon footprint. Folks are recycling, and if you don't recycle, we have folks that wake up really early in the morning that will go recycle for you. (laughs) The community was not wasting water because they didn't have the resources to waste water. So, what that began a shift in narrative of who is actually supporting a healthy ecosystem and who is benefiting from that because then we start weighing the impacts of different communities and if I'm going and traveling around the world to look at birds is my carbon footprint actually higher than the communities that I'm meant to educate about conservation
0: probably is
1: it it sure is (laughs) so that started a whole shift in, in how we think and how we value our community, which ultimately led to to a great collaboration and and a shift in 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 really being able to deliver programming that was meaningful, that was authentic, and that was uh, effective.
0: Very cool! Great way to think about things. Gosh, you kind of turned it right on its head there. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm going to shift a little bit. The Los Angeles River. Uh, I, I had a chance, my wife, uh, and long story, but I spent maybe three months in, uh, in Orange County. Uh, and one of my favorite places to go birding was along the LA River. But when I first got there, I thought, there's no river where's the water? <laughs> it's like, you've you got a long place. just a giant concrete culvert, basically. I mean, yeah. there'd be water here and there certain times a year, but it was, it didn't, it was not like any river I'd ever, I mean, I grew up in rural Maine. We had rivers. It just looked like a river. It didn't look like, it was no concrete in that river. Uh, and, uh, but it is a really cool nature resources, you know, biking and, and running paths on both sides of the river in places and, and, deeper pools where there is water and a lot of wildlife. I just love the Los Angeles river as a birding spot. Uh, so you, you grew up around the the, the river and it, it sounds like it's one of your favorite places. Tell me some Los
1: Angeles river stories. You know, it is, it is. And it, it's definitely how you explain it. Folks, when they hear LA river and then when they actually see it, you know, a couple of different emotions come up because one depending on where you are in that 50-mile stretch, there's either a lot of water in wildlife or none. And there was a significant amount of concrete that was poured in that river to channel it. And, And back then, the idea was to get the water from one place out to the ocean as fast as you can, really to allow for building. The thing is that, that the Alley River was a historical river and, and there was a lot of springs and, and a lot of really cool natural things that happen and that exist along this, this pathway. And there is about an 11 mile stretch of the Glendale Narrows to, you know, uh, just north of downtown, which is an area called uh, Frogtown, Elysian Valley, and then sections of Chinatown, Solano Canyon natural springs, the cement could not stay. <laughs> and it was just lifted. And there are pockets of this area where there is a soft bottom that supports vegetation. A large part of that vegetation is is uh, or has been exposed to to non-native uh, invasive uh, species, Arundo, tree of heaven, things of the, the sort but also a number of native plants. We have willow, we have California sycamore, we have uh, mule fat and all these, these beautiful riparian species. And so now it supports a significant amount of habitat that people are now today enjoying. Whereas when I was a kid, this was over, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, going down to the LA river was something you didn't do, except when you were trying to get away from parents <laughs> or, or the local neighborhood gang where you just, you know, I just want to get away from everyone. So a group of us, our friends would go down uh, to this space. And in that, that moment, there was a disconnection from the community to this space because it was, it was labeled as, as not being a safe space.
2: Mm.
1: Now they have taken down these, these fences and they started building these elaborate, you know, uh, condo experiences and it's really supporting this system. But for me now, when I, when I go down there, especially with my kids, it's, it's one because I I still have family in the neighborhood. And also it is a very different experience I get to share with my kids where that is is where it happened. That bird story, that spark is where it happened for me as as a a person that was really getting into this, this experience of of building parks and we were building parks along the LA river. And I look up, and I see this huge bird. And this thing I knew immediately was magical. It was, it, it, there was a f- familiarity about it, but it was still very mysterious. I knew it was a raptor. I didn't know what a raptor was at the time. <laughs>
2: yeah. I
1: could tell you now I knew it was a, it's a, it was a raptor, but I knew that it was not a hawk because at that point, the only bird or one of the only birds I, I was able to identify was a red tail hawk and, and it was bigger than a red tail hawk and it was just flying up and down. And I was like, wow, check that out. And because I was working on this project for uh, a number of months, I started to see it regularly. And every time I I was in this space and someone was I'm like, hey, check it out, check it out. Like, do you know what that is? Like, who knows what that is? No one. No one knew, knew what it was at, at that time. And I end up um, being in a bookstore. And at that time, I was already studying geology. I could find a, a book and, and learn about rocks and field guides. So I, I picked up a Sibley's and I'm checking out the pages and immediately ran into what is known as an osprey. And I just couldn't believe it. I think that experience of looking through it by that time, I already knew the, the, the habits, the pattern. I had watched it snatch a, a fish out of the river. And it was just, I was, it was over. That was the experience that, that had drawn me in. And I think for like the next six years, I did not go anywhere without that field guide and without a pair of binoculars.
0: <laughs> so you're hooked. You're hooked. Very yeah, cool.
1: definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely.
0: So you've got you've got not just a uh, a spark bird, but a spark uh, place, really a, a a place dear to your heart. So that is yeah, uh, definitely. And, and you live there. So that's uh, I mean, you live near there. So that's really cool. yeah, that's really cool. So tell me about the the Audubon Center at Debs Park. Is a, a it's a big place, a little place? Where is it?
1: The Audubon Center at Debs Park is located in Northeast LA. So it's about. Uh, five miles northeast of downtown. Okay. It's in an area uh, uh, called Highland Park, and it is a 282-acre park, Ernest E. Debs Park. It's the fourth largest park in L.A. And this is where folks are also like, what do you mean, the fourth largest park? I mean, like, no one really thinks about open space in the same story, (laughs) <laughs> with, with, with Los Angeles. And, and what our center is doing is really changing that narrative because we have this space. There's a lot of hills. We're, we're close to the foothills of the, the Angeles Forest, which Angeles Forest gets up to about 6,000 feet elevation. So all of this is running along some tributaries that eventually connect to the LA River. Mm-hmm. We actively manage 17 acres of that park This center was built in 2003, it was the first center that the Audubon Society invested in, in an urban area with the primary focus to serve the Latino community that exists in this area. Flagship center, first building to reach a platinum certification for LEED um, so in 2003, this was the most environmentally friendly building in the country, which was really awesome. There's all these these really neat fun facts about about the, the building, even down to the rebar that was used to pour the foundation. That was part of a buyback program the Sheriff's Department in LAPD had uh, in taking guns off the street. They melted those into oh, wow. the rebar. That's a that great they used. story. Right, and me being from the neighborhood. You cannot imagine how happy I was that we had that many guns on the street to take off to build this place. So it was definitely one of those things, Um, you know, you come with mixed emotions. So uh, we are now in a a space where we are actively pushing back on the conservation movement as a whole Mm -hmm. in how to do this work in communities of color. Uh, there was a time where all of our staff, 100% of our staff identified as a person of color. 100% of our staff lived within five miles of the center. Wow. So we lived, eat, sleep, play, work in the space. And that, that is unheard of for any type of work, let alone a conservation for sure. uh, uh, organization. So some of these things have shifted and 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 we are opening up. Uh, in, in a very different way to bring back indigenous voice into our space. And we're really prioritizing decolonizing a nature center in a very intentional way. So
0: explain I, uh, Decolonizing doesn't click for me.
1: Which, which is basically looking at how an organization with a rich history such as Audubon society, we are now uh, uh, up to to at a point where we have to face certain facts about Audubon's history
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how it was a club and how this organization that we named this person after yeah. owned and sold slaves sure and the whole baggage that comes with that. What do we have to do to shake off all of that, that baggage and set intention for really being an organization that is embracing all aspects of our community, even the as- aspects that are a little tough to, to, to come to terms with. And, and so when we talk about decolonizing, it's, it's not just for the sake of, of getting the shock factor of like, oh, is these are bu- buzzwords that we're now hearing, <laughs> but it's really setting intention to not just change the wrapper of something but actually change the essence of something which will ultimately be inclusive by nature. And that's what we're, we're set, setting our focus on whether we'll be successful in, in the way we, we'd like to see. It, only time will tell, but but we can we can't help but, but try.
0: Nobody knows the future nicely explained. Thank you. That uh, was beautiful. I, I like that. Uh, I want to uh, shift again just a little bit. Uh, you're doing uh, a podcast now, uh, Human slash Nature, nice uh, catchy name. Uh, <laughs> and I, I got a chance to listen to some of the episodes. It's just pretty new. It, I think uh, six episodes or something so far. Uh, and uh, you've been to the lead on several of those. Oh, I have to say the one that most, uh, you know, just grabbed me was the one by Jessica Hernandez. Uh, and I think I got through, you know, eighty percent of that before it was time for us to talk. Uh, So I didn't quite catch the end of it. But it sounds like that was one that uh, you weren't, at least, actively involved in the audio part of it. Uh, But uh, her story is very uh, poignant, very poignant. It just kind of reaches right to the to the essence of. science writing off indigenous peoples. There's been a lot talked about uh, uh, ornithology in Latin America. Maybe we should have some uh, Latin Americans involved. <laughs> and uh, yeah, novel thought there. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so it was just uh, really struck home to me. So uh, tell me about your podcast and what you're trying to do and and you know, the, the, the whole movement.
1: Yeah. Um, so Yes, the, the the podcast is very new. We launched this past Earth Day, and this podcast is a way of us sharing nature that exists in urban environments and in the urban world. It's not just for for Los Angeles, but any urban urban neighborhood throughout throughout the country. And what we're doing is highlighting stories and. Uh, particular topics that we don't normally associate with the urban atmosphere. The idea is that they, we were always told that we had to go somewhere to experience nature. We had to get in a car, you drive up to Yosemite, you go on a, a, a great family trip to you know, Joshua Tree, which these places are amazing and beautiful. But what happens is we start to cut ourselves out of the picture when it comes to nature. We are nature. Us existing within our urban world is nature. It is different, but we still are nature and there are these beautiful things that we can learn from, one being birds that exist In a way that I think tells us these wonderful things about our planet, either as as key species indicator species, and they tell us stories about the health of our of our communities. So for for us, we really wanted to highlight some of these stories that we find and and share them in a way that that listeners can can actually hear and experience because. There's just so much out there and it's not always highlighting the most positive aspects of the world. And I just feel that, that this is a way to really focus on things that, that we can connect to every single day. And as a bird watcher, you understand that <laughs> you have to go out of your way to not experience birds, Absolutely. you know, close up the windows, block out the sun. I mean, they are singing. They are allowing their presence to be known, but most people are tone deaf. Most people have already blocked them out. So this is 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 trying to to generate some of that curiosity or restart that curiosity that that we're naturally born with.
0: I I, I think it's uh it's right on target. Uh, you know, the, if COVID has taught us anything, it's that. Uh, you know, you as a birder, uh, you know, you can, you know, birding in your backyard is pretty cool. Maybe you didn't notice that. <laughs> maybe you didn't notice how aggressive the Anna's hummingbirds are at the feeder before. Uh, uh, maybe you didn't. Uh, maybe you didn't notice that the 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 scrub jays uh, are, uh, you know, harassing the crows, and the crows are harassing the eagles, and <laughs> the eagles yeah. are trying to ignore it all. Uh, and, and you know, this. Uh, I, I live in a places near a big park so a lot of that stuff kind of flies near where i live and it's in a you know i i grew up in oakland maine i would call where i live a big city you know, tacoma you know but uh, if i was from la i'd think i was in the middle of nowhere so yeah it's all all things are relative but yeah bird, birding in uh in the pandemic has really uh it's been a great pastime but it's also been a, a chance to rethink a lot of things
1: yeah, I was so grateful to hear when the LA Times came out with one of the approved or recommended activities was, was to birdwatch during the pandemic, because you could keep your distance.
2: Exactly,
1: <laughs> But it, it was definitely something that, that was encouraged
0: yeah very much so uh, it, it sounds like uh, a lot of the topics I had suggested to bring up are maybe not as relevant as I had thought so I'm gonna kind of uh, stick to the to the urban uh, nature birding sort of scene Do you have any uh, tidbits or information things you wanted to uh? You know, encourage people to do. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things your assistants uh, suggested uh, that I ask you is how do you get people off their iPhones for a little while so they can create a new habitat by connecting with nature. I'll bite for that question. Uh, yeah, uh, go with that.
1: So, one thing that that we had learned early on in in that whole. Uh, debate of of putting down the phone or or choosing something is we were always gonna lose. <laughs> <laughs> there is just so much to compete with when it comes to you know down to if I have to choose, you know the iPhone or the or the screen or participate in, in, in this activity that's going to force me to go hike and be quiet and listen. So what we try to do now is incorporate some of those activities in ways that, that people can still use technology. So eBird has been a, a fantastic way, iNaturalist and all of these other apps that, that you can use on your phone And what we've learned is that when we go that route, they will start to put down the phone without us even asking. When we get them to experience something on their terms, then it promotes a different experience because they're, one, with something that they're used to and they have such connection. To then going into something new that they're able to experience, but still have something they can come back to. So if there is a moment where they're uncomfortable and it's too quiet and they're not seeing a particular bird or an activity and there's just that, that, that moment of being uncomfortable, mm-hmm. that's when people start swiping and, and scrolling or looking things up. To then getting to a point where the moments that they are using the phone is not because they're they're trying to fill that gap of time. It's because they're trying to capture that moment. Or enhance either it. Either yeah. and enhance it. It's either like, okay, wow, now I want to to have this moment where they're, you know, we're now teaching them how to take pictures through through their, with their phone, through a binoculars Mm -hmm. and with practice, you can get some pretty good shots.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It's also something to do. Then they're able to share it on social media. They post it on their Instagram and then it becomes an experience that they can encourage other people to do. And we found the most success when we're, when we're trying to incorporate that or make it a challenge and, and have that edge because they're learning but they still need to have something that is is extremely familiar to them. And then I also think about it like, how many things that I'm tr- am I trying that are absolutely new that I'm not having any 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 comfort. <laughs> so it 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 allowed us to to reflect and and also have some success on that end.
0: Yeah, very cool. Uh, so, so basically uh, what I think I heard is that uh, don't harp on people about getting off the devices, uh, give them a way to use the devices to, uh, to learn more and uh, experience nature even better.
1: And one to promote different habits with the device, because now they're not focused on things that are dragging them down or, or bumming them out. Mm-hmm. They're amplifying some of that positivity.
0: Nicely put. Nicely put. Thank you. That's uh, I like that. I like that. Marcos, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? I'm going to kind of, I try to wrap up with giving people a chance to, uh, to, uh, you know, let people know how they can be contacted.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm always available through email. So folks have questions that are, uh, specific to, to Audubon and the work that we're doing at the center, they can always reach out to me there. If it is um, in a more casual way, I'm, I'm active on social media, I'm active on, on Twitter and Instagram, and, and uh, very open to, to communicating and, and chatting and learning about nature.
0: Terrific. Marcos, give me your handles. I'll make sure I put them in the podcast notes. So for Twitter and uh, Instagram, you
2: are at...
1: I'm at Brownburder on, on Twitter. And okay. I'm the Husky Naturalist at Instagram or on Instagram. So it's Mar- Marcos Trinidad on both. Um, but Twitter is uh, at brownburder And for... Instagram, it will be a uh, Husky naturalist.
0: Okay, very well. I'll make sure I put, uh, put links to those things in, uh, in the podcast notes. And I do a blog post for each episode and I'll make sure I, uh, I do that too. Uh, Marcos, thanks so much for doing this with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I had fun and I learned a lot from you. I appreciate that. I would <laughs> like to learn something and uh, that's super cool. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate you um, taking the time as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'll encourage listeners to check out your podcast. It's a uh, it 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 strikes me as a, sort of a an urban version of uh, Bird Note, only not just about birds. It's kind of a longer than Bird Note, <laughs> but kind of got that feel. If you like Bird Note, you like your podcast. That's All right,
2: I
1: mean. <laughs> take care. Thank you oh, so bye. much. Right.
0: Well, that wraps up the Bird Podcast, episode number 131 with Marcos Trinidad. Thanks for listening. I'll make sure to leave links to Marcos' Twitter and Instagram accounts in both the program notes and on the blog post associated with the episode on birdbanner.com. I hope to continue to have guests who have wisdom, points of view I need to hear, and great stories to tell in more episodes going forward. Please let me know if you have suggestions for guests using the contact page on birdbanner.com or by direct message on any of my social media feeds. Until next time, thanks for listening,
2: good birding, and good day.